<clears throat> Good morning. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Um, I don't know much uh, about the Holy Spirit. I don't really understand um, a lot about the Holy Spirit, but two things I want to assert to you today. Um, one of them is that I have racked my brain. That one of the things I love uh, studying um, in, in uh, Scripture is trying to understand how they got, how how we got from Jesus to Christos. How did Jesus become Christos in the minds of a Jewish captive audience? I understand Pauline. I understand when when uh, Paul goes off into the into the hinterlands and preaches a new way. Uh, but you don't have all of that Jewish background to cut through. And so I, I would assert this morning that when I'm studying Hebrews, this is majestic. And there is no way, in my humble opinion, that a man came up with this. If you read all of Paul's letters, he will tell you that uh, he, didn't, he didn't come up with that on his own either. That that was all divine revelation. Um, everything that he was given, he says, I was given, given it by God. And when you read through some of the majestic writings of Paul and Romans, and you just see that that's not something that man contrived out of his own. Well, I'm telling you, Hebrews is the only place that it talks about priests. And to link that with Jesus and then see that that was all a part of God's plan from the very beginning, all the way back in Abraham, when, when Abraham met, uh, met Melchizedek the very first time. That's been the plan from the beginning. It's been orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. So I, I would just tell you, I don't really understand how that works, but know, in my opinion, that the Holy Spirit is totally involved in the writing of this book. Uh, that's why I believe this book has, um, has made it into our canon, because uh, without authorship, uh, it, it very well could have fallen by the wayside. But it's so majestic and it's so filled with the Holy Spirit. Second thing I'll say about the Holy Spirit is that <clears throat> a, lot of, a lot of my friends will say, well, the Spirit let me do this and the Spirit let me... The Spirit's never led me to do anything, truly. Uh, I, I really am not in touch with the Spirit uh, until I open Scripture. And when I open Scripture... And I truly sit back and do what's called a close reading. That just means I, I, I mull it over. I think about it. I work with it for days. Um, the Holy Spirit will direct my thoughts. I don't think it's something that I come up with, but the Holy Spirit will direct my thoughts. You know, I can give you another thing about the Holy Spirit. I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to say today. That's because uh, I'm, well... When I was a freshman at Abilene, no, that's not true. When I was in graduate school at Abilene, I didn't go to, anyway. When I was in graduate school at Abilene, uh, one of my major speech criticism people was Landon Saunders. And I met with Landon one morning at 5 o'clock in the morning. I said, now you're going to do the keynote tomorrow night. Have you got, your, got, got everything read, written and memorized? And he said, nope. I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, I have prepared probably three different lectures for tomorrow night and I have no idea what I'm going to say to do anything less would be to squelch the spirit 
because I believe that the Spirit is going to direct what needs to be said when he got there. Well, I've never been that brave, but I'm trying to teach myself to be that brave because today we're going to be directed by the text, and that's where we're going to go. Okay, and I, I believe when you open Scripture, it, it, it does what was back in chapter 4. The Word of God is living and active. It's like a two-edged sword on, the, on, the soul, on your own soul. Uh, Brother Marshall Keeble, do you remember who Marshall Keeble is? Brother Marshall Keeble would say, that sword cuts a both a coming and a going. <laughs> it, it will penetrate. The Holy Spirit will use that scripture to penetrate your soul and change you. I don't think for one minute that uh, people change by coming to church. Uh, another thing uh, Brother Keeble used to say, he said, um, Sitting in, sitting in a chicken house will make you no, will no more make you a chicken than sitting in a church house will make you a Christian. I don't believe that coming to church does anything to make you Christian. It's the interaction that you have with Scripture and the Holy Spirit. So I just that I've laid that out. Good. Now <clears throat> uh, this morning we're talking about priests, and um, I want to. Just do, I've never done a PowerPoint thing, so it's, this is just new to me, okay? But I want to take you through just a couple of slides. I just want to talk about the priesthood for just a second. And um, that didn't work. Okay, so here are the qualifications for a priesthood. Um, and I, I just dug these up. It must be male, number one. It must be a descendant of Aaron with documented lineage. Must be, be between the ages of 30 and 50 years old. Must be unblemished, not lame, or... I let Dell proofread this last night, and it, it, it was blonde. <laughs> you believed me, didn't you? I'm just kidding. No, you... <laughs> she said, you mean blonde people can't be... Pre-? That's right. Okay. Must have a proper marriage. Uh, not married to a harlot, not married to a divorced woman, not married to a widow other than a priest's widow. The high priest must marry a virgin of his own people, must have no uncleanliness, must have an untrimmed beard, well, but with well-trimmed but unshaved hair, must be properly dressed. And a high priest's death was a day of celebration. Who is that for? Does anybody know? The high priest's death was a day of celebration. The people who were convicted and in the cities of refuge, when the high priest died, they went free. Just amazing facts. Good. Now, um, okay, how many priests were there? Here, here's a, this is interesting. Uh, and the Levites were numbered from 30 years. This is when they came back. This is first, I'm, I'm sorry, this is first temple. And their number of the census was 38,000. Of these, 24,000 were sent to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. 24,000. Josephus tells us that there were as many as 40,000 priests that worked. Now, that's not at the same time. They worked for two 24-week rotations. So a week at a time, you were on as a priest. That's what you did. Um, but Josephus also tells us that about half of the number of priests lived in the city of Jerusalem. So that's a lot of priests. Would you agree? It's a lot of priests. First temple, uh, 
first temple, the site, uh, when Solomon built it, it was about three acres at the top of the Temple Mount. Uh, when Herod, well, when um, um, uh, who is Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, when Zerubbabel and Nehemiah came back and built the second temple, remember what the old people did when they saw the second temple? The old men, they cried. Why'd they cry? It was nothing like the majesty. But then Herod came and he expanded it. And he expanded the Temple Mount to 13 acres so you could get more. There were more priests, there were more people. It was a bigger, bigger deal. Okay? Let's go on. I have no idea what the next slide is. Okay, close. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and beauty. You shall speak uh, all the skillful persons who I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments and consecrate him so that he may minister as a, a priest to me. And you shall make on its him pomegranate and blue and purple and scarlet material all around on its hem and bells of gold between them and all around a golden bell of pomegranate and all around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers that tinkling can be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord that he may not die. These clothes meant you, if you were going to be a priest, you had to wear the clothes. I think the next one is clothes. Here's a picture of the clothes. I cut off their heads. This reminds me of when Dell took a picture of me and Alan Jackson together. <laughs> you can't see her head. The only way you can identify Alan Jackson is the knees were out of his blue jeans. <clears throat> um, this, is, this is the everyday. These are the everyday high priest robes. The everyday high priest robes. The, this is the breastplate, which had all the 12... Uh, different tribes. I can't really describe all of it. I cut off the pomegranates, the little bells, the little bells. But just think about that. When you're in worship and all of a sudden the high priest walks in and you hear the tinkling of the bells, it's the literal sound of holiness. This is the robe for the day of for, um, uh, Yom Kippur from the Day of Atonement. Uh, this is the day, the one day of the year the, the, who the, what is the holiest people in the world? Anybody? This is, this is supposed to go real fast. This is what they did in rabbinic school. <laughs> holiest people in the world, Israel. Chosen by God, okay? Of the holiest people in the world, what's the holiest tribe in the world? The tribe of Levi. Of the holiest tribe, who's the holiest person? The high priest. What's the holiest place in the world? It's Israel. It's Israel. And the whole, you go break it down, the holiest city is Jerusalem. Then you go to the holiest place, the Holy of Holies. What's the holiest day of the year? Well, there's 365 days. With the holy. It's Yom Kippur. That's the day of, of, the day of atonement. Um, yeah, Rosh Hashanah is Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur, day of atonement. So what it is, is the holiest man in the world goes to the holiest place in the world on the holiest day of the world and utters the holiest word in the world that he's not allowed to utter at any other time, and that is Yahweh. He goes in and utters Yahweh. And the part of the reason he has bells on uh, his robe is so that when they also tied a rope around his leg. When he went into the Holy of Holies, if they hear the bells go, 
That means his sin has killed him and they would drag him out. Okay? This is serious stuff. The, he, rope the rope, I think it is. I don't, I don't have it. I'm sorry. You know, in the scripture before that you had in the Exodus scripture, was that rope part of it? No. Okay. No. So they added that? That may be Talmud, too. I don't know that that's even scripture. That may be just, uh, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Here's Talmud. Talmud would say, while they are clothed in priestly garments, they're clothed in, the, clothed in the priesthood. But when they're not wearing their garments, the priesthood is not upon them. I've got to hurry. Um, okay, this is my own personal bias, but I believe that the book of Hebrews, and I think there's evidence over and over and over, uh, but I'm not a scholar, so I'm, I can't really, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist your minds today so that you can, just as you read, just think if it's probable or not that part of the audience, Josh said earlier a couple of weeks ago, that the audience for the book of Hebrews is obviously a well-educated Jewish group. And I would tell you that audience, I think, contained a large number of priests that became obedient to the faith. Okay? Does anybody know how to turn that thing off? Keegan, can you just push, push that button? Turn. I tried that all morning. You're the man. This is why, this is why Michael's here. He, he can handle it. Okay, so turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 1... In Hebrews chapter 1, well, in 1 verse 3, he says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. Provided purification for sins. That's that's priest language. He sat down at the right hand of God. Why is that relevant? Why would a priest care about that? Priests don't sit. Why don't priests sit? They're working all the time. Priests don't wear shoes. When they get there in the morning, when they get there in the morning, people are lined up and they work constantly. They never get an opportunity to sit down. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. 3-1. Therefore, holy brothers, you share in the heavenly calling. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest. And here in 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through into heaven, Jesus, Son of God, let us firmly hold to the faith that we profess. What I want you to see is that in, in one, he said he doesn't even say the word priest, but he does, he does a priestly function. So you know he's talking about priest. In two, he talks about... We have not only a priest, we have a high priest. In three, he says, we have a high priest. In four, he says, we have a great high priest. How does that make you feel? You know why you're not feeling what, what I think you ought to feel? It's because we've overused the word great. Well, that's great. Thanks for sharing. Great. 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 That's great. You're great. I'm great. He's great. We're all great. It's a great day. Sermon's great. Music's great. Everything's great. We're great, 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 great. I, I talked with my, uh, my Greek uh, person the other night at the symphony, Lee. George sat in front of me, and uh, 
I said, George, why? Why, did, why is it great? And he said, well, you just ought to use the Greek. And I said, that's true. The word is mega. So when I've marked it out in my Bible. Therefore, since we have a mega high priest, we got a mega high priest who has gone through into heaven. He's not just in heaven. We don't really understand where people go when they go to heaven. They just go to heaven, okay? But that we know that there are different places in heaven. And what this writer is saying, remember Paul said, I was caught up into the third heaven. This writer says, our high priest has gone through heaven, straight into the throne room of God. He is sitting right beside God the Father so that when we need him, when we have access to him, we don't have to cut through any of the gobbledygook. He's right there. Let's keep going. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we were, yet without sin. So let us approach the throne of grace. That's the first time that's ever seen in Scripture. Throne, kingly, grace, priestly. Throne of grace. With confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's read just a couple more sentences and I'll stop. Every high priest is selected from among men and appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts, thank offerings, and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. In your Bibles, somebody tell me what the... um, Somebody tell me what the translation there is there for deal gently. I'm sorry? Out of compassion. Anybody else? That's the only other version we have. I mean, I mean chapter 5, verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant. What is deal gently? Bear gently. Anybody else? Okay. Should be an I there. Sympathane and metriopathane. Take a look, and, and I'm not a Greek scholar. Dr. Floyd would be laughing right now if I did this. Um, If you look at uh, chapter 4, verse 5, verse 15, I'm sorry. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize. That's sympathane. Sympathane. And then you come down to verse 2 in chapter 5. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant. That is metriopathane. And I've had a hard time. uh, I I, I listened... uh, I listened to a lecture by Dr. Bob uh, Deffenbaugh from Dallas Theological, and he gave me this. And this is, this is just brilliant. This is brilliant. Because this word, metriopathane, it's the only time it's found in the New Testament. And it only means something if you're a doctor, a teacher, a social worker, a minister, an elder, a priest. It only means something to you if you're in somewhere in that vocation. Let me tell you why. I, George, 
I had to go to the restroom and I said, George, I've got to leave you with two words. I want you to tell me what they mean when I come back. Sympothane and metriopothane. I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> and I come back and George looks at me and he goes, measured. Measured. And it just went, light bulb. He's exactly right. Measured. When you're dealing with people who have lots of junk and um, people have lots of junk. There's, we all got junk. And uh, when you're a doctor, you're talking about people that have junk. And when you're dealing with that junk, that's hard. It's hard. And then you've got to go home and be with your kids. I mean, I'm looking at Paige and Keegan. You got to go home and be with your kids and, and play with them and be lighthearted and all. But at the same time, you're being torn apart because you've got a child you're taking care of, a veteran that's got cancer. And it just breaks your heart. And so you react to that case. I hope y'all don't mind if I pick on you. You guys react to those cases with this right here. You can't be this. Because if you were this, that's full-time, that consumes you fully. You get it? If you're an elder and people come to you and they got junk, you do the best you can. You measure your pathos, your empathy. You do it as best you possibly can. But it's not always good enough. Do you see that? We have a high priest who is sympathane. He is total, absolute. He sees all of our hurts, all of our needs, and he takes care of every bit of that. Tell me that wasn't written to priests. That was written to priests. Let's keep going. This is why he has to, and he's talking about earthly priests. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for own sins as well as the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. Thus, this is big, all those arguments up until now, thus. So Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. He didn't have some conversation with God and say, yeah, I'd like to become a high priest one day. That's not it. No, but God said to him, and then he starts quoting from the Psalms. And it's the kingly Psalm. He says, but, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, a divine oracle from God. Verse 7, if you go back to the Psalm and read. Now we're in verse 7. You are my son. Today, I've become your father. In other words, you're my son. You're the crown prince. You're going to be king. Then he says in another place, and it goes to Psalm 110, which is the priestly, kingly psalm. You're a priest forever. The same kind of priest as Melchizedek. Zedekiah. Melchizedek, king, Zedekiah, king of righteousness, justice. Zedekiah. In Greek, that's diakonos. During the days, I'm verse 7, During the days of Jesus' flesh on earth, 
He offered up prayers and petition with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Think about that for just a second. During the days of Jesus... Now, most of the time when I've read that, I've gone, I've thought, well, that, he's talking about Gethsemane. He's talking about when Jesus said, um, take this cup from me, if you would. But I would tell you that it says days. That Jesus spent his whole ministry saying, God, I want to do what you want me to do. I know who I am. I know the plan. I don't necessarily like it, but I want to do what you want me to do. Let's keep going. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the eternal source of salvation for all who obey him. What does that sound like to you guys? What does that sound like? It suggests that that's how somebody would read it if they weren't reading it through kingdom eyes. They would read it and they would say, he wasn't perfect. He had to learn how to be perfect. God taught him how to be perfect. What made him, what made Jesus perfect? He did it all willingly on his own. Here's another thing. Could Jesus have not been perfect? Is it possible for Jesus not to have been perfect? He could have been not perfect. If that were not true, that he lied and said he suffered as we suffered. I think that's true. Temptation didn't have any meaning. If If he couldn't. So the possibility had to be there that he could. He didn't. But that, that's, that's, how, that's how... Otherwise, he wouldn't be tempted every way as we are. Exactly. He would not be sympathetic because he hasn't been there. But he is. Is this not majestic? Is this not straight from the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart? Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. And he was designated by God to be a high priest the same as Melchizedek. Now, who is, you know, Josh is going to talk about Melchizedek in chapter 7. But for the next three chapters, I mean, from uh, 5, 6, 7, 5, 6, 7 are all about priests. It's all about the priesthood. You're going to be so sick of the priesthood by the time we get done. But Melchizedek is a priest unlike any other priest. Um, I'm not going to talk about it. Okay. <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the funniest part of this because this is, this is hilarious. I think the writer just gets so mad. We have so much to say about this. But it's so hard to explain because you're stupid. (laughs) Literally, Northros, the word Northros there was used by Plato to say, every time Plato wanted to say you're stupid, he would say Northros. Well, this writer says Northros. But translators just 
somehow just can't put the stupid word in there. So slow to learn. Here's better. You don't want to hear. You do not. We have a lot to say about this, and it's hard to explain because you don't want to hear. You've been lazy. Lazy. That's exactly. That's it. In fact, though, by this time, you ought to be teachers. We need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word. Think about, hypothetically, if you were priests and you've got all access to all the theology and all these great theologians, you're back and forth every day talking, and you've got Jesus and you haven't figured any of this out. What are you doing? You're pew-sitting. You're pew sitting. You're not in it. You're not in. You're not trying to figure out who he was. You're not trying to figure. I mean, it's it's it speaks across the generations because it speaks to us today, just as well as it spoke to the people two thousand years ago. What are you doing? Wake up. You need milk. Not solid food. Anyone who lives in milk is still an infant, is not equated with teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature by by constant use uh, and have trained themselves to distinguish food, uh, distinguish good from evil. Josh, how many of you went to first service? What Josh said in his sermon this morning habit beats willpower. Eats willpower for lunch. Habit eats willpower for lunch. In other words, be a Christian. Learn why you're a Christian. Some people, you know, uh, Amy Jill Levine, uh, I, I asked her one time about why she goes to the women's prison. And she said, because I'm a Jew. I said, what's that got to do with anything? She said, Jews act out their faith hoping that one day they will have a faith. Christians and young people specifically will look you in the face and say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And I look at them and say, frankly, Scarlett, I don't care that you don't believe that. That's That's not what I'm saying. You need to act like you're a Christian and maybe your faith will grow. You act like it before you believe it. That's not the way Christianity is today. That's chapter 5. Comments? Josh? Um, we got all day. We got all day. <laughs> yeah, just two maybe quick things. Keep paying attention to how, to how he's building his theology, his understanding of who Jesus is. We've seen Jesus as high priest and king and son of man and like God, uh, son of God. So Jesus is... He's the Sunday school answer. He's everything. So it's this beautiful kind of filling out of who Jesus is. Um, and then as we see the, the flow from the first few chapters coming into this, part of what he's calling them to in their stupidity is not uh, necessarily some sort of intellectual lacking. But if you remember the previous chapters, it's a stubbornness. It's an unwillingness. It's as much a heart issue as it is a head issue. They're not hearing the elementary things because you don't want to hear the elementary things. Because elementary teaching, and he keeps coming to again and again, is Jesus is our pioneer. And how does he pioneer that? He learns and he becomes perfect through suffering love. 
and our difficulty in hearing that is not because only we can't wrap our brains around it, but we don't want to wrap our hearts around it because that's costly. Hmm. And so this is why he's angry and he's pushing. He's trying to get that simplistic, but yet so <coughs> contrary to our will point across to us. That'd be the only thing I'd add. That's great. This is excellent. Definitely. Anybody else? Yes, sir. The last verse, who by constant use have trained himself to distinguish good from evil. That indicates that we may not necessarily have an innate ability to distinguish good from evil. And I see that in the world where people who are doing evil practices convince themselves that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, it's by training that we can make that distinction. That we distinguish, we're able to distinguish righteousness. That's, that's the, the distinction. Yeah.